Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media, and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to episode 63 of The Picklist. I hope you're having a good week. My guest this week is Spencer Price, co-founder and CEO of Hala, a US-based tech startup working within online grocery. Hala are expanding internationally and they're looking at the UK market at the moment. And so Spencer talks to me about their vision for how retailers can create a much more personalized experience for online grocery shoppers and how to help them discover new products that they might like. Also, how retailers can get much better at online substitutions so people don't end up with completely random products in their deliveries. So that's coming up in a moment, but first let me bring you up to speed with some of the big stories in food and grocery retail this week. Food and drink suppliers have called for a pause on new legislation while they focus on dealing with the fallout from the Ukraine crisis and soaring inflation. A number of trade bodies told a parliamentary inquiry of MPs that the government should prioritise food security above all else in the current climate and pause initiatives such as the HFSS crackdown due to come in in October. More food and drink companies also warned about rising inflation as a result of the Ukraine conflict this week. Fevertree said commodity prices had jumped dramatically since the war started and it has been forced to cut its annual earnings forecasts as a result. Meanwhile, the NFU last week wrote to the government calling for urgent action to protect UK farmers from soaring input costs and ensure they're in a position to produce enough food to keep Britain fed. UK feed wheat prices are already up nearly 40%, and there are growing concerns about seasonal labour as Ukrainian workers account for 60% of recruits under the UK's seasonal workers scheme. Ocado reported its latest quarterly results this week. Revenue dropped by 5.7% in the 13 weeks to the 27th of February, as more shoppers returned to stores and their pre-COVID shopping habits. The average amount spent per shopper fell by 15%. Three quarters of snacks included in retailer meal deals have dangerously high levels of fat, sugar and salt, a new survey by campaign group Action on Salt has suggested. Of the major supermarkets, Action on Salt said Asda had the highest proportion of HFSS snacks in meal deal promotions. Iceland is expanding its Swift convenience store format to London with a store to open in Wembley and the retailer will offer 10-minute delivery from the store in partnership with Uber Eats. Starbucks is looking for a new CEO after Kevin Johnson announced he's stepping down. Howard Schultz will return to take over on an interim basis. And in other food and drink movers, Tara McCarthy, the chief executive of Irish food board Board Beer, is stepping down after five years in the role. She's leaving in June to take up a role in the private sector. 
These are some of the big food and grocery retail stories this week. You can find links to everything I mentioned in the show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. And now, here's my conversation with Spencer Price. Spencer, welcome to The Picklist. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you, Julia. Happy to be here. You are co-founder and CEO of a technology startup called Hala, which describes itself as a human preference engine built exclusively for grocery. I'm going to ask you to explain in a second what a human preference engine does, but you're basically in the business of predicting what people are going to put in their baskets when they're shopping on online grocery sites, and you also help shoppers discover new products online. That sounds like a fairly niche thing to get yourself into. How did you come up with that idea? What's the story there? Uh, Perfect description, first of all. Second, to answer your question, we've been at this for about six years now. My two co-founders are Henry and Gabriel. We're friends from high school. All of us born and raised in Los Angeles. And after a couple of years of college, we realized we'd love to get working on something alongside our studies. Um, to make that long story short, we've been on pause from school ever since. Don't know that we have too much of an intention of returning. (laughs) With that said, um, we realized the best way to figure out what you want to work on with some friends of yours is to talk about it over food, as many amazing conversations and relationships are developed. Unfortunately, however, we do not necessarily have the exact same taste preferences, dietary restrictions, you name it, And it occurred to us that food is incredibly personal and nuanced. And so just from our own struggles of what do we want to make together? What do we want to go out and eat together? We landed on this really fundamental human query that we've been answering ever since and now serve grocers with that answer. And it's how do people decide what they want to eat? And in a nutshell, Hala enables grocers to predict the answer to that that specific question for each and every one of their unique shoppers in real time while they're shopping in order to deliver the best suggestions, substitutions for out of stock items, and last but not least, search results that are totally tailored to your preferences, tastes, the household you're shopping for, seasonality, dietary restrictions, time of day, occasionality, you name it. And there's a really interesting backstory to the name as well, which I want you to just explain to listeners. What does Hala mean and where does it come from? Yeah, so there are a couple of interesting things about the name. Um, to, to really boil it down, though, Hala comes from Hala, which is C-H-A-L-L-A-H. We chopped off the C at the beginning and the H at the end for a simple, clean five-letter name. and Uh, Challah is the bread in Jewish culture that's eaten on Friday nights for Shabbat dinner. And it's really seen as a food that brings people together. And what better way to signify that we're in the business of understanding that food is personal than by naming ourselves after the food that brings people together. Uh, The other thing that's interesting about our specific spelling is that in Spanish, it's actually pronounced aya, and aya means to find or discover. So there's kind of this through line between the backstory and how it actually landed uh, once we uh, selected that name. 
Just tell us a little bit about where you're at in terms of your development as a startup. When did you actually launch the product and how widely deployed is the technology at the moment? We got started in early 2016 and at the time it was still a bit of a science project. Um, since then, we have gone through a few iterations of our, of our technology and how we bring it to market. And what we do today, Hala Recommend, Hala Search, and Hala Substitute that I touched on a minute ago are three APIs that are all within a, a suite of solutions that we call Taste Intelligence. And that really got launched in 2018 and, and went to market 2019, servicing grocers all over North America, beginning to do some more international expansion over the coming months. Um, the company is headquartered in New York City. We're mostly a remote and distributed team because most of our growth happened during COVID. And we have raised just under $9 million to date and deployed our technology in over a thousand e-commerce storefronts for a wide array of grocers. Got it. Now, obviously, I need to ask you about your UK plans because you do have a bit of a link to the UK as well. One of your investors is James McCann, who my listeners will be very familiar with uh, because he was formerly at Tesco and at Sainsbury's. But what is your view on the UK online grocery market and the opportunity there? And do you have plans to launch here? We absolutely have plans to launch. And while I can't necessarily announce anything specific today, I can allude to some work that we've already started to uh, embark on and we're really excited about it. And part of why is because the UK had quite a big head start as compared to the US when we talk about grocery e-commerce. The US was a bit uh, of a laggard, if you will. And one of the things that James brings to the table is he's um, the investor that led our most recent financing round last year, joined our board of directors and an incredibly accomplished operator and executive in the grocery business globally. But most of his, his expertise was in, in the UK itself. And one of the things that's occurred to us is it wasn't really until 2017 when Amazon acquired Whole Foods that the US and, and North American grocery industry at large was sent into the innovation frenzy that it's still in today and will be for the foreseeable future. The UK already had the likes of Ocado mm -hmm. developing incredibly innovative solutions for grocers and for consumers alike. And we think we have a, a much more unique opportunity to position ourselves um, in such a way where we're enabling grocers to actually accelerate their ongoing innovation efforts as opposed to kickstarting the beginning of them. And that's much more exciting to us because as a startup, we're nimble and agile and want to be at the cutting edge, not playing catch up. So we can't wait till we have some announcements, hopefully later this year, about some of the work we're doing in the UK. Fantastic. We'll definitely keep our eyes peeled for that. I also really liked what you said a little bit earlier about helping shoppers discover new products. And I think it's probably worth spelling out why that is such a challenge or can be a challenge in an online grocery context, because people get stuck in the same buying patterns quite quickly when they shop online. A very large percentage of online shopping basket comes from people's favorites and past purchases. So you're kind of just buying the same stuff on repeat. And it's quite difficult for retailers and for brands to disrupt that and get people to consider 
different products. How does your technology help people break out of those patterns and open their eyes to some new things? So I want to acknowledge before I dive right into the answer that there are some distinctions in the UK grocery space uh, as compared to the US. And, and one really important one is that the store format for decades now has been laid out in so much more of an intuitive fashion in the UK from a shopper's perspective than in the US where it's honestly kind of the same that it has been for the last 100 years. The point being, let's put all the most frequently purchased products as far away from each other as we can so that the shopper has to browse the store um, more and more and hopefully be inspired by something that catches their eye and buy those products. Um, as it turns out, that's just frustrating and does mm. not appeal to convenience. So the, there are a couple of exceptions, of course, in the US, including Trader Joe's is a great example that has taken after that that gold standard of an approach that's much more intuitive, much more seasonal and meal oriented as it, it happens to be in many of the grocers operating in the UK. Um, however, one big thing that's true across the board is impulse and incremental sales are the most unique part of the grocery business. There's no other type of store that, that not only does this, but even has the opportunity to pump the scent of the bakery into the rest of the store so that you're inspired to buy more. And that's a globally true trend. Um, then you've got, of course, the checkout aisle that frankly hasn't evolved in many, many years from gum, candy, and magazines that are trying to get you to buy a few more items before you complete your checkout. Those things are, are, are pretty difficult to replicate online. And one of the reasons that it's so important is because it amounts to these incremental sales, 20% of the average grocery bill is unplanned prior to purchase. Um, that's not to say that the other 80% aren't repeat purchases, but uh, much to your point, people do get stuck in habits and it's when they're browsing the store that those things may pop out to them that they wanted to try, that they heard about but forgot about till they saw it on the shelf. Um, when you're in an online environment though, things become, um, almost inverted. And, and what I mean by that is grocers have by far and indisputably the singularly best opportunity to create a highly individualized shopping experience that's unique to each of their own shoppers. So everybody could have their own store. You're not browsing tens of thousands of SKUs, only buying the same 200 every year but instead you're seeing the 200 you always buy and a few thousand more. And yet the reason for the inversion is despite this opportunity, they see far fewer incremental and impulse sales mm. because that isn't necessarily how they approach it. Um, and so that discovery piece that you zoomed in on is a key part of, of what we care the most about, which is expanding the horizons for shoppers that fall into routines and habits. Um, and of course, for those who are inclined to be adventurous, just making it easier to discover those products they're likely to enjoy. And there's no better way of describing this than other digital platforms that have been out there and taking off for many years now, namely Netflix and Spotify. Netflix is a great example because even within one household, every single user has a different profile. And if each of you 
logs into Netflix, you have a completely different set of suggestions on the home page. It doesn't just mean the titles are ordered differently. It means the categories presented to you within a category, the rank order of priority, and then for each title, the cover art, believe it or not, can be different from one user to the next to make it most engaging for each specific end user. That's not necessarily how it feels in an online grocery environment. You might see um, the products that you purchase most frequently right when you sign in. And then beyond that, it's all going to be deals and specials and promotions that are promoted by the brands, the weekly circular. And then you're clicking through aisle after aisle or category after category, searching for a very specific product. And that's exactly what we're trying to do a bit differently. And the way we do that is by, yes, Netflix is a good example because I think a lot of people understand it and can resonate with that. But we're actually taking after more of the Spotify approach. Um, and Spotify, I think almost everyone can acknowledge has, has surfaced a handful of amazing suggestions over the years. Songs or artists you didn't know you'd love, whether that's through features like Discover Weekly or a playlist you created yourself. And at the end, it says, these are some songs that would fit great into your playlist. The way they do that is not just by looking at how um, in many ways Netflix approaches this and, and certainly how Amazon approaches these sorts of discovery oriented experiences. And that's by saying customers who bought A also bought B. Mm -hmm. The reason that's a challenge in grocery is because customers who bought anything also bought bananas. They also bought toilet paper. <laughs> and you don't want to see the same five things coming up all the time just because they're in everyone's shopping cart. And so to work around that, we take after what's called a content-based filtering strategy as, as one of a handful, but one of the main methodologies that, that drives our approach. And what that means is we're breaking down the idea, the essence of every single product in a grocery store's inventory into all of its various subcategories, metadata attributes. And so just taking Spotify an example, as an example, they know that for any given song, there are hundreds of subcomponents that make up that song. And those are instrumentation, arrangement, vocal register, all these objective measures through to subjective measures like danceability. And we're doing the same thing with, of course, marketing claims and certifications, organic versus not, um, through to those more subjective measures like preparation style, taste, texture, flavor attributes. And by combining that with each unique user's shopping behaviors, what you get is a really magical world where you begin to be introduced to things that you didn't necessarily know you were going to enjoy until you saw them and tried them for the first time. I'm super interested in this. And how much control does the individual user have over this? And the reason I'm asking is when you were talking about the checkout, the aisles at checkout, here in the UK, as you will know, those have already been revamped quite a bit. There's a big debate about HFSS products, the health um, debate, creating a retail environment that supports people to make better choices as opposed to tempting them into uh, buying products that they perhaps might regret. Talk me through your vision on that. How does that work with your technology and how much control would I as a user have to say, you know, please stop suggesting sweets to me because I really don't want to be tempted right now. So I love that example because that's something that you might feel that the let's avoid sweets today uh, example. That's something that you might feel in this specific shopping trip and maybe the next one. But how about in five trips from now? You've been um, eating well, exercising regularly, and you feel like you deserve a treat. 
Do you want that to stay a permanent filter and you're never going to be able to find a suite again? Probably not. And so um, while there are platforms out there that enable grocers to have these sort of rules-based environments, once you set some, it can be a little bit hard to break out of. And it's also more work, less convenient to the shopper. We have dabbled in, you know, questionnaire and, and very mm. manual intent driven types of approaches. And what we found is that while there always is going to be a small subset of shoppers that do prefer that that persists, um, by and large, shoppers in the grocery category do not necessarily want anything invasive about the experience. And so today, everything that we do is behind the scenes and driven by implicit behavior. So for example, if you uh, never once have purchased a product with dairy in it, and you've actually in your search queries type lactose free or dairy free mm -hmm. a number of times, we're going to stop surfacing anywhere near the top of any set of results or suggestions, dairy products. And we'll get a sense based on other things you purchase. Like if you buy um, oatmeal, but you never buy um, almond nut butter, that the milk you're likeliest to enjoy is oat milk. <laughs> and so these sorts of implicit behavior-driven intentions is what, what really powers the bulk of our experience and the learnings and the adjustments over time, but that's today. In the near future, it's going to be a blend. Um, we're exploring a few different iterations of that, but, but we do believe that it's one thing to indicate that you might have dietary restrictions or you mm -hmm. have a craving right now, but it's a whole nother thing to have ambitions, right? To have a goal for something in the health and wellness realm. Mm -hmm. Protein and content or more veg or, yeah. Mm. Precisely. And um, today there isn't any grocer that provides you as the end user with that control, let alone the data. And we believe both are important. So we're working right now on a few different iterations of user direct intent, right? explicitly listed goals and ambitions, um, sets of options that will drive that experience and won't necessarily force feed anything, so to speak, but instead will be nudging you in a direction over time. And then that second piece, the data, we think is just as important. What if you got a monthly roundup, kind of like your Spotify year in review that said, by the way, this is how many calories you had across all the different products you purchased. Your carbon footprint was reduced by this much relative to the month before based on the products you purchased. And we believe you have an opportunity to do a little bit more in categories A, B, and C if you tried these things instead. So I think both components are really important. Today, we don't see much of either in the market. So we're trying to make sure that we don't introduce something that's okay and we have to make sure it's a lot better over time but is really compelling to start. And I, I imagine the very first major public facing deployments going to be at the end of this year. Perfect. Now this whole conversation around the retail environment and how the shopping experience is changing uh, quite rapidly now also filters through into the articles that you have picked. And the first one is from the New York Times and the headline is, here comes the full Amazonification of whole foods. This is reporting on a revamped Whole Foods store in Washington, I believe, and which now has lots of Amazon tech entered, but most notably, it now has the Just Walk Out technology, which is basically cashless shopping. That's something that UK listeners will be familiar with as well. Amazon has these stores here as well, and there's some other major grocers that have dabbled with that cashless technology. 
But it's so interesting reading that article to see how people react to that as a new shopping experience. Some of them super interested, find it very convenient, others less so. What did you take from that particular article? Why did it stand out to you? Personally, it was striking, not just professionally, but personally because I attended a concert a few months ago at the Red Rocks Amphitheater. Um, for those in your audience who may not know, it's a, a world-renowned concert venue in a national park here in Colorado. And I was super excited about it, but there was a really long line to enter and then another line that wasn't so long. The line that that wasn't so long was peculiar. Why would there be two and one of them is you know almost instant entrance and one looked like an hour and a half? So of course I go to the short line, that's me. Um, it's because the way you enter in the short line was by signing up for and using Amazon One, Amazon's palm scanning technology. While we could have a whole conversation about GDPR and the uh, soon to be iterations of that in the US and other major markets across the globe, there's, there's something to be said about whether that that technology is actually attractive to most consumers. Um, we already trust our face data and in many cases our thumbprint or fingerprint to just use our mobile devices, our personal owned mobile devices. But to enter a venue, let alone to check out at a grocery store, which is how this article was introduced with mm -hmm. the Amazon One technology, um, does feel like a pretty different world. And what was particularly striking to me about that piece and why I then dove right in is there are so many ways around that. You could very easily scan a code on your phone before you check out that's tied to your Amazon account. Done. Easy. Why do they need to have my palm data? And how much more of an efficient experience is it to do that than to take out the phone that by all likelihood I'm already holding in my hand um, and check out that way? So that was part one, was raising my eyebrows about data privacy concerns and a, a, a sense of security as you're shopping for groceries is not something anyone's ever thought should be questioned. And now people are raising their eyebrows and for good reason. Part two is, the Amazonification of Whole Foods was, of course, a, an intriguing title. And the way that they actually went about describing it is exactly accurate and on point. I'm not questioning the reporting for a second, but it's kind of funny because the implication of that headline is Amazon has been the leading e-commerce retailer for the better part of 25 years. And at the same time, the way that they're Amazonifying Whole Foods has very little to do with e-commerce and almost entirely with digital innovation in the brick and mortar store. Mm -hmm. Why would that be? And so as you read on, one of the things that, that stands out most glaringly is that there are inefficiencies that they believe can be solved with technology in the brick and mortar grocery environment. And I definitely agree. I think that's true, whether that's scan and go or just walk out types of frictionless checkout. I think those definitely have a future ahead. Um, but a lot of it is, is really not about taking the nuts and bolts of what makes Amazon a successful business and applying it to Whole Foods and, and lifting up their presence as an innovative grocer, but instead is using Whole Foods 
as an outlet to grow Amazon's core business. Now, now you can take any product you'd like to return to Amazon to Whole Foods. And so I'm scratching my head thinking, we've got one of the most well-known and innovative businesses on the planet who acquired a really well-respected grocer. And instead of combining the forces of innovation and grocery expertise to create the next best grocer, it seems more like the strategy is how can we leverage the footprint, the brick and mortar mm-hmm. um, reality that is Whole Foods to better our existing business at Amazon, maybe turning these over time, albeit slowly, more so into distribution centers for products that will go well beyond the grocery category. So that's what was striking to me because there's almost the opposite trend occurring from every other major grocer on earth where they're using technology vendors to better their e-commerce offerings, their omni-channel shopping experience. And they're certainly not trying to to turn um, you know, your local Morrison store into a return location for items you bought online. <laughs> So, so possibly looking to see a little bit more of the whole foodsification of Amazon and not just the Amazonification of that would make for a terrible headline, um, by the way. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly. I think it's super interesting, though, the point that you raised also about uh, people's perceptions around privacy, because you are in in the sort of personalization game and that that is always a really fine line to to tread isn't it making sure you personalize enough so it's relevant and it delivers a great experience but not straying not knowing the customer so well or knowing them in areas where they don't want to be known that it that it kind of crosses over into that creepy territory and creepy tends to be the word that, that people use on that where do you on it as far as an online shopping experience is concerned and an online grocery experience where do you see that line? What is too much personalization based on where shoppers are today? It's an excellent question that could be looked at as Pandora's box, but instead I think it's it's actually more of a, an opportunity to share with a lot of people that might not necessarily be thinking about it this way, that it's an incredible um, area of untapped potential, if you will, to not just think of it as a fine line, but almost the opposite, that personalization can be done and in many ways can be done best without knowing anything about you as a person, as ironic as that sounds. Here's how Hala approaches it. When we work with a grocer, we need to know what what's in your product catalog. And, and I'm sure um, you've had a number of conversations about this in the past, but the The reality is grocers are pretty protective and sensitive over the data that they generate for very good reasons. Now, a product catalog or inventory is just is is one part of the equation and isn't necessarily as proprietary or sensitive. Anyone can go on their local grocery store's website for online shopping and see what's sold. Um, But not everyone has access to customer data, loyalty data, et cetera. And so what we actually need to get started in, in working with the grocer is your product catalog. Once we get over that hump of the product data being ingested, that's really all we need to get started. So that's one unique differentiator. We don't require, but we do recommend it because then we're not learning from scratch about shoppers you might have years of loyalty history from. Uh, so we often ask for some amount, some sample, if you will, of customer transaction data. But when we do so, it is always anonymized. In fact, we refuse as a pillar of running our business to transact in any PII, personally identifiable information. And 
while there are a number of reasons for that that protect ourselves, it's really because we care about the end consumer. And to make that believable, we are all end consumers in grocery. And I don't necessarily need third-party vendors I've never heard of and don't even know are part of my shopping experience, knowing who I am, where I live, how old I am, who I live with, what I look like, what I make. And frankly, those factors don't play into making a really good and engaging shopping experience nearly as much as understanding the products that are available and, and one's behavior with those products. So all we need to know is shopper one, two, three, four, five is different than shopper four, five, six, seven, eight. Mm-hmm. And that each of those has a unique set of transactions. That's it. So that's how we approach this. And that is certainly not the case for every vendor out there, especially those developing certain types of um, frictionless checkout technology where you kind of need biometric data to make sure you're not encountering problems with theft, um, to make sure that you're assigning the right products to the right person's basket before they walk out of the store. We're not in that business. I'm going to take you back to a point that you raised a little bit earlier, which is about substitutions, because it neatly takes us to your second article, um, because helping grocers manage online substitutions is part of, of what you do um, at, at Hala as well. And your second pick is from the Wall Street Journal, and the headline is Raspberries for Cauliflower, the Bizarre World of Online Grocery Store Substitutions. And it looks at why those substitutions happen and also specifically why they've been happening more frequently as a result of the recent supply chain crisis. It feels like weird online grocery substitution is definitely becoming its own content subgenre here in the UK as well. There are lots of articles about what is the weirdest thing that you have uh, ended up with. But there is a serious side to this story because all jokes aside, consumers actually really hate it when they do not get what they ordered. So this is a big problem, it's a big friction point, a big reason why people churn out of online grocery as well. Spencer, why did you pick this piece and why are substitutions high on your agenda? I picked the piece because for two reasons. The first, it's really entertaining. (laughs) It is. Um, One of the examples that might resonate with more of your audience is from a 39-year-old shopper in the UK who placed an order for a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc from Tesco. And what happened instead was when the order arrived, they got a juice-based drink um, that really would only have worked for her daughters, not anything close to what she was looking for. We've seen far weirder ones than this, but just to bring it closer to home, I thought would be helpful to paint a picture that this is a global issue. And while some may say that the current supply chain crisis and the logistics therein are are to blame or playing a role, that's really not the issue. Um, And so that takes me to my second point. What is the real problem? Why is this happening? And if it's such a big deal, consumers really hate it, even if it makes for a funny story once in a while, and it's churning out users in many cases from their online grocery shopping, um, why is nothing being done about it? And Well, there's a few different ways of of tackling that, but the first and most important is the nature of human beings versus machines. Mm -hmm. Human beings, even um, when they're, whether they're shopping or whether they're working to fulfill the shopper's order, it's it's not gonna make too big of a difference that things ultimately are up to our discretion, what's convenient, and most importantly, what's easy. To a machine, you can code away any concern about easy, and it can all come down to precision. 
And today we don't see really any data-driven approaches to smart substitutions or alternatives for out-of-stock items. And instead it's left entirely up to that pick and pack gig economy worker fulfilling your order or the store associate, who quite frankly is measured on time above all else. And so if they see that the specific spinach you aren't looking for, you're looking for is not there, they're not gonna go to another part of the store to find the, a, a, the proper spinach that might solve for that gap. And instead they look to the side and they see carrots. Cool. Mm -hmm. Done. Throw it in the basket. Um, when you leave things up to the shopper's discretion, you incentivize them on time above all else, and their pay goes down when they don't fulfill as much of the order as was originally uh, intended. They're going to continue to replace things with products that don't make sense until you arm them with a data-driven set of suggestions. And you can say, hey, Actually, you don't have to go particularly far in the same aisle you're in, there is a proper substitution. And there, it's one thing to have um, a third party provider that's looking at this data and, the, and all these insights across a wide array of grocers, industries, different types of shoppers, different regions, as it is to be one grocer and seeing, okay, we're out of cherry tomatoes, for example. Um, Let's serve, let's serve them with cherries instead, because that's in the name. That, that is a very good example of where Hala comes in and approaches this problem differently. We're not, none of our technology is, is built around keywords or around just raw metadata, but it's semantics and understanding that in the, the name of the product, cherry tomato, cherry is a modifier on tomato and an heirloom tomato would be a much better replacement than a cherry. So those distinctions are not necessarily things that someone who has four orders to place for completely different households all within the next two hours is going to be able to think through, even if they're a chef. How much do you rely on data accuracy from manufacturers on this? Because I, I guess with an example like a cherry tomato and an heirloom tomato, fine, you're talking about relatively generic items here, but when you're making decisions or when your technology has to make decisions about, is this fair trade? Is this British sourced? Is it gluten-free or whatever? How good is and how granular is the information that the retailers, but also the manufacturers supplying into retailers are currently putting into the systems? I'm hesitant to say this as plainly as I want to, because our, our partners and the, the clients we serve are grocers themselves, but they know this well, so I'm going to just go for it. Grocery has notoriously dirty data. It is a mess out there. Um, things are coded for internal use, and somehow that becomes the, the name of the product as far as everyone in the supply chain is concerned. And it, it might be frozen chicken nuggets 12 count, by a certain brand, and instead it's coded as CKN12. <laughs> to extract the essence of what that actually is from such a dirty string of data is, is particularly challenging and not something that grocers tend to see as an undertaking to solve themselves. And, and while brands and manufacturers traditionally do have much, much better data quality because they have, they're not serving, you know, 50,000 SKUs and instead they only manufacture, you know, one to a hundred and in some very select few cases, several hundred products. They have very good data because they make the products. They're not just selling them. They're not just another part of the supply chain. They need to know a lot about them with the certifications, marketing claims, everything. Um, but we serve the grocer. 
So we're not getting direct access from the manufacturers to the way that they actually um, build out the data associated with all their products. And so instead, that's a big part of our work here at HALA. Um, we have a knowledge engineering team that, that sits within our broader tech organization. And their job is to, in, to do both manual work as well as always improving on the algorithms that self-teach and self-improve um, our proprietary ontology, which is really a taxonomy of products and categories and metadata attributes, et cetera, so that if there's any type of product that a retailer has or they, they seemingly have in their inventory that we've never seen before, it's immediately resolved into what it is and the likeliest categories that it falls into as well. Um, data cleansing and, and what that last part is known as, taking something that is just a bunch of letters and, and resolving it into the actual product um, is called entity resolution. Those two pieces are critical components of Hala's secret sauce. I think I'm really intrigued by you what you were describing there. So the quality of the data coming from the manufacturers can be great. It can be super granular. But then something happens within the retail environment that dirties it up and means that it doesn't then get presented to uh, or is made available to, to people like yourselves in a way that preserves that, that granularity. What is it that happens within retailers that means despite strong inputs, sometimes the the data that is that is then output or is available to you guys doesn't have that level of cleanliness. It's really simply a matter of bureaucracy. Mm. It's it's different functions, business units at each organization. So the the sales team at Kraft Heinz and the merchandising and assortment team at um, Tesco are who are communicating about which products and in which volume and to which locations. It's not the data team at Kraft Heinz talking to the data science team at Tesco and actually exchanging that. And so what happens is merchandising is going to put out it, or, or the buyer for a category is going to put out a, a purchase order and they're going to code it in their way, right? It's going to say, we want this much of this product and this much is going to be Tesco's unique way of signifying quantity. And this product is going to be Tesco's unique way of shorthand writing out the name of that product. Um, then the brand or manufacturer in this example, Kraft Heinz is simply gonna deliver on that purchase order. They're gonna fulfill the request and send the product. There's not, it's not in their best interest to say, oh, you misspelled mac and cheese and here's, <laughs> right? That's just not the nature of how that relationship flows. Um, the other piece is they do think of it as a bit of a competitive edge, some of these, these brands and manufacturers to have that data because they wanna be able to market to consumers directly and say, you want Heinz ketchup. You want Heinz ketchup. Don't forget about Heinz ketchup. Whether they buy it from Tesco versus Sainsbury's versus Morrison's doesn't matter. Um, in some cases, it certainly does. They have numbers to hit and objectives and trade spend that they've deployed. But in many cases, they care about having a loyal customer to their brand and their product, and they want to have as much access to that data to do so as possible. It doesn't mean that they don't ever share this data with the retailers, and sometimes they do, but the chances that, that the data from a specific um, brand team flows up to 
the parent Kraft Heinz gets over to the category management or merchandising assortment team at Tesco and then flows down into the people that manage IT relationships with vendors like Hala. There's too many stakeholders that are just going to try to make it easier and more efficient along the way. So that by the time it gets to us, it's, you know, KH 12 ounce. <laughs> Got it. I'm going to change tack and I'm going to get you to talk about something very different and very okay. British. I really feel like I made you work for this by uh, by picking this particular article. But this is um, a piece from The Times and the headline is Gen Z have never eaten jellied eel. Let's give it a try. Um, this is looking at how some traditional British foods like jellied eel are falling out of fashion with younger consumers who in many cases haven't heard of them, certainly haven't tried them. The article is really good fun, um, but I think there's a sort of, again, interesting and more serious underlying story about if you are one of those more traditional brands or if you are perhaps um, a manufacturer, a producer of a more traditional food that is in danger of falling out of fashion. What are perhaps some of the opportunities to get that product in front of younger consumers and get them interested in trying that again? So I'm really keen to get your take on that. But first of all, I do need to know what on earth did you make of some of the foods in this article and had you ever heard of jellied eel before? I am happy that that's where you, you started the question because <laughs> I'll be honest, I was scratching my head reading this article. I'm thinking, okay, jelly deals, they're going to get to something I've heard of. Well done steak. I've, I understand that in theory, but people <laughs> get that. And then I'm reading more and more liver and onions, black pudding, and everything's, I'm scratching my head so hard, I'm scared I'm going to actually tear part of my scalp off. Um, it was all brand new to me. It was certainly fascinating. Um, but I do think that this trend, despite the fact that there's more of a heritage and history to the culture of food in the UK than there are in many other parts of the world, especially in, as compared to the US, um, that there's going to be truth more globally too to this, this idea of more traditional dishes and meals being less appetizing, just quite frankly, to a number of uh, younger shoppers. And one of the things that makes that feel a bit more um, real is that it's not just about these things being less appetizing, but more importantly, really less front and center. What is actually capturing attention? How can brands and manufacturers surface these products to consumers who before have, have never heard of them, let alone those who have, but really don't know what they are and haven't wanted to try them? Um, a, really big component at Hala in delivering these shopping experiences that are all about servicing the right products at the right times to the right shopper comes down to relevance. The reality is, and I can't speak for consumers at large and anyone who thinks they can should question that, um, is that there's not going to be um, any universe where, where every shopper would agree that Jelly Deals is relevant. Doesn't matter what they do or don't have in their cart, what they have or haven't purchased before. It's not going to apply to everyone. So it has to be first looked through the lens of individual behavior. Then from there, if you look at what people have purchased before, um, 
you're going to be able to discern if there are any overlapping ingredients, any recipes that have sort of a Venn diagram of what makes for jellied eels versus this other dish that, okay, this could be becoming more relevant. Um, so once you know that, it, that some of these products may be relevant for some shoppers, how do you bring them to front and center and know that it's the right time and place to do that? That's where digital ad media comes in. Today, the best uh, providers of this digital ad media real estate in the grocery environment are doing so with, with two main variables at play. One is the bid. So how much did the manufacturer spend to, to promote that product? And the other is matching it to the category. So you might see that someone added um, a salad mix to their basket. Now you know that our, an engine like ours might know that dressing is the likely next thing, but unfortunately the categories that, that these providers out there are, are really looking at is not dressing, but more broadly sauce. So now you've got, let's find a sauce for this salad. Well, who would have guessed? Heinz Ketchup back in the chat is, is spending the most on their cost per click campaign. So you added your salad mix and it's gonna say sponsored product suggestion, Heinz Ketchup. Cause from the right category, sauce, and they spent the most on the ad. You need an engine that places relevance above the bid price and that understands categories more granularly like Hala to increase the actual engagement with those campaigns. And so in this specific case, um, even though it's more of a meal, just thinking of it in that context to make it a little bit easier, we might say that um, jellied eel for a shopper that we know from their behaviors might be inclined to try it before, but who hasn't, should see a lower um, bid price to get their attention because it's, it's not necessarily likely, but we're going to surface it high in the list um, given whatever they might have in their cart and what they're looking at right now for that shopper because it is much more relevant to that shopper as opposed to having, you know, someone spent a ton of money just putting it in their face. So the opportunity is to work with a combination is for these brands and manufacturers who want to surface these, these more traditional products, these, these less seemingly desirable or aware products to younger shoppers by using a combination of a digital ad media provider and a personalization vendor. Just doing one isn't going to solve it. All right, Spencer, we are pretty much out of time, but if people want to find out more about you, find out more about what you do or connect with you, what's the best way to do that? To learn more about Hala, just check out our website at Hala, H-A-L-L-A dot I-O. And if you'd like to get in touch directly, feel free to shoot me an email. Happy to chat. Spencer at Hala dot I-O. Fantastic, Spencer. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Julia. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful. If you did, please consider giving The Picklist a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening and leave a review. It tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue, and it helps me reach more listeners. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglotz.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter at juliaglotz.com forward slash newsletter. See you next time.